This morning, we've already seen this passage of Scripture illustrated in the baptisms. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. When you and I individually choose to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and we place our full confidence on what He did, on His perfect life, on His sacrificial death, on being crucified on a cross and buried, when we trust that he paid the penalty for our sin, then through faith, we are united with Christ. And we trust that just as he died and was buried and rose again to newness of life, he offers us eternal life right now through faith in him. And so it's a beautiful picture. But that union with Christ should make a difference in how we live. In our study in Philippians, we've been looking to some degree about, uh, about that union of Christ and, and that that is our source of joy. And we're going to conclude Philippians' study next week, but it is all rooted in being united with Jesus Christ through faith. Now, today we're also going to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper. And there are, there are two things that come together here. Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ which is something that is fixed because it is not based upon what we have done. It is based upon what Christ has done for us. He did the work. All the credit, all the honor is placed upon Jesus Christ. It's nothing that you or I have done that earns our salvation. We are completely dependent upon Christ. But there is also not just the legal truth, which is that when we trust Christ, we're united with him. But then there is an experiential truth that is represented in communion or the Lord's Supper. There is changes in our intimacy, our closeness with God. But God invites us to live continually close to him. And Lord's Supper or communion is a reminder of what he has given us what he has done for us, and the promises that he has made. So we're going to look very briefly at Romans 6 and then a passage from the Old Testament that leads us into um, communion in Jeremiah. But as we're doing that, um, I want you to keep this picture, this idea that baptism is a portrayal of this union. In many ways, it is very similar to, and I can't take it off, like I said earlier, to my wedding ring. It's probably good that I can't take it off. Um, This does not make me married. I could have put this ring on before I got married, but it does represent the fact that I have committed my life to my bride. In the same way, baptism is that that portrayal, that um, proclamation that you have committed your life to Christ. In this congregation, we come from many different backgrounds. Many of you come from backgrounds where part of your tradition and, and your upbringing is that you're, you're baptized as a child. And when that happens, it is, a, it is um, your parents making a commitment saying, I want my child to know Christ, to know who he is, and to, to live in a relationship with him. Here in in our congregation, we practice what is called believer's baptism 
because we believe that actually the fulfillment of what happens when a child by its parents is dedicated to the Lord is that when they make it their own, it's a time to celebrate and it's a time to have that portrayal of identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and making it our own. They beautifully actually work together. It's a fulfillment of the desire of of parents. That's why in this church we, we call it child dedication because it is our desire that one day that child, as they grow, will discover a personal relationship with Christ and make him their own. And it's a beautiful picture of our union. But if we are united with Christ, there should be some changes in our life. The picture of baptism is that my old life, the sinful, selfish, Drew-centered life that defines who I am, that that should be buried just as the body goes under the water, my old life should go into the grave with Christ, and I should be transformed and walk in a different way than I did before I trusted Christ. Here in this passage in Romans chapter 6, the chapter actually um, illustrates what some of those changes should look like. And he begins with, in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, in the previous chapter, he's, he's illustrating how um, God has been gracious to, to us in incredible ways and that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And He illustrates through the scripture that where sin abounds, their grace abounds as well because God is a redeeming, loving God, but he is also a holy God. And therefore, if I've come into a relationship with him, my life should look like there's a change. And so he says, you know, are we to keep going, keep on sinning? Well, the rest of of Romans chapter 6 actually gives us four reasons why that cannot happen and should not happen. And I'm going to just give this to you as a summary, but I want to encourage you to read this this week. In, in verses 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul who's writing this is saying, you cannot keep sinning. If it is real, if your relationship with Christ is real, there has to be a transformation that happens. And we'll look at that just a little bit. But the next set of verses, in verses 12 through 14, he's saying, you don't have to. The power has been given to you by the resurrected Lord to make a difference. You don't have to be a slave to sin any longer. It doesn't have to have power over your life. In verses 15 through 19, he basically is telling us that we must not. We cannot, we need not, and we must not because it would bring sin against our master, the one that we love. And then finally, in verses 20 through 23, he tells us that we better not because there's a warning there that our life will lead to disaster if it continues to be defined by sin. So there should be transformation that happens in our life. And here his answer in Romans 6 verse 2 says, By no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's first answer is that we cannot continue to sin because it died. 
It was buried with Christ. Our sins, are, the scripture tells us, are nailed to the cross if we've trusted Jesus Christ. So when I continue to sin, I am not living the new life that God has given me. I am choosing to be dead, to live like I was dead. If we take my little illustration of, of marriage as, as a picture of this union with Christ, if after I got married to Rebecca, I chose to live as single, I would miss out on all of the benefits of our relationship. And I would greatly offend my bride if I continued to live a life separate and self-focused. The same is true with our relationship with God. There should be a deep transformation that happens. Because what we're seeing illustrated in baptism is the great exchange. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ gave his life for our death. He traded places with us. You see, he not only died as our, as our Savior, he died as our representative. He took upon himself our sin, and he bore it for us, the full penalty. But he didn't stay dead. God rose him from the grave, showing that he was victorious over sin and death, and to give us a new life. And so therefore, our lives should portray that truth. So baptism is this beautiful picture. He says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's the picture. But you see, it requires us to personally put our faith in Jesus Christ, to unite with him individually. He did all the work, but he invites us to trust in him and unite our life with his. So that's the picture of baptism. But also, there is a picture of the Lord's Supper or communion. And that represents our relationship with Christ, our ongoing connection. Just as I'm legally married to Rebecca, I also live with her. In case any of you were curious, we, lived, we do live together and have for many, many, many years. And, and that's what communion represents as well. It's our connection together, our growing relationship with each other with Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of what he has given for us. In his book, Commune with God, the great Puritan writer, John Owen, makes a distinction between union with Christ and communion with God that is very helpful. He says this, on the one hand, our union with Christ is fixed and unchanging. It does not rise and fall based upon our faith, our, because when we go through seasons of doubt, which we will, when we go through seasons of of disobedience, which we do. It doesn't, it's not based upon what we do. It's based upon what Christ has done. Our union with Christ is as certain as Jesus' unconditional love, which does not fade. 
It is as secure in Christ's grip as our life is. And the promise that nothing can separate us, nothing can snatch us from his hands, as he tells us in John 10, 28. On the other hand, though, our communion with God does change and vary. It is affected by our faith, by our obedience, by whether or not we're willing to follow the Lord in what he tells us to do. And as a result, our experience of his closeness, our sense of his love, our sense of his intimacy will change. But he continually invites us to grow closer. And that's what communion serves as a reminder of. It's a beautiful celebration of something holy and true. And when we take of the bread and of the cup, we should do so in love and in reflection, remembering the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. And that's why the scriptures invite us to examine our heart, first of all, to see if our faith is real. Have I trusted Christ as my Savior and as my, as my Lord? Secondly, is there unrepented sin in my life? Is there unconfessed actions or attitudes? Are there offenses against others that I have not taken to the Lord and asked for cleansing? And turn from it and say, Lord, forgive me for what I have done. I am coming back to you. Just like in a relationship where you have a disagreement and when we wrong someone else, when I wrong my wife, it is um, wise of me to turn and ask for forgiveness and try to restore, it's really wise, try to restore that relationship with her. Communion is a time where we come back and we want to do the same thing with the Lord. Say, Lord, here I am. I'm remembering who you are and what you have done. And I want to repent of my sin. I want to turn from it. Now, the reason that that is so significant is because this picture, the reason I chose to use the illustration of the wedding ring is because this is actually God's illustration for us of our relationship with God. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, when he establishes the Lord's Supper, he says this, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. When Jesus established the Lord's Supper or communion, he said this is a new covenant. It is a new relationship. As humans, we have contracts. And contracts have conditions where we agree to do something. But a covenant is something much deeper because a contract can be broken by either party. But a covenant with God cannot be broken by God. Because he has already placed his name, his reputation, his perfection on that covenant. He's done his part. And when he makes a covenant with us, he is inviting us into his promise. And ultimately what that promise, that new covenant is, it is Christ's wedding vows to you and to me as his bride, the church. 
Now, one of the glorious things about God's Word is the New Testament and the Old Testament fit beautifully together. When we understand how they, um, how what is written in the New Testament is based upon that which is written in the Old Testament. And so as we prepare our hearts to celebrate communion, I want you to turn to the book of Jeremiah and look at what Jesus is referring to when he says this is a new covenant, a new promise, a new relationship where I have done all the work and I'm inviting you into this relationship with me. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This new covenant, this is what Jesus is referring to. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. And look what the next phrase says. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You see, this covenant is a marriage covenant. And through the scriptures, we discover that God's people had turned their back on God as their husband. They'd rejected him. And so Jesus has now offering a new covenant, not just to Israel and to Judah, but to every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's inviting us into this relationship with him. And in this passage, we're going to see some vows that God makes. He says, I will over and over again. And it sounds just like a marriage ceremony. Listen to what God says in this covenant to you. Because this is his promise he is making to you and to me. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, let's just take a moment as we're preparing our hearts to receive communion. Think about the vows God has just made. I want to give you some very brief illustrations out of this. First of all, this new covenant is about a personal union with God. He says, they shall all know me. It's not about a religion. It's about a personal relationship where you and I choose to trust and follow Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It is bigger than just going to church. It is something that we must personally do. And that's why baptism is such a beautiful picture of this union because we personally choose to identify with Christ and proclaim to him, to the body of Christ, and to the world that he is our own. He is our Savior and our Lord. Also, he says, I will put my law into their minds. He promises that he will transform our thinking. He will give us the mind of Christ. When we trust Jesus Christ, he changes us and he gives us a new understanding. But he also says, I will write it on their hearts. It's not just a change of thinking. There's a transformation of who we are, of our character and our heart 
that is changed when we enter into this covenant with Jesus Christ. He will change you and change your heart. He goes on in in Ezekiel to say that he will take out a heart of stone that is selfish and cold and hardened and give us a heart that is alive like his. Verse 34 promises forgiveness of all of our sins. I will forgive their sins. God in his new covenant Because Jesus poured out his blood, his blood covers over all of our sin. It's not based on how well we do afterwards, after we trust him, although we should desire to be obedient. His blood covers our sin, our guilt. It is completely nailed to the cross. We're not worthy of it, but he has graciously chosen to give us forgiveness, and not only forgive us, but to cover us with his holiness, his righteousness. And then there's this promise. I love this. Their sin I will remember no more. Isn't that good news? I remember my sin all the time. Spurgeon says something that's absolutely amazing about this. Because God God promises not only to forgive us, but he promises to forget. And Spurgeon says it this way. It is a wonderful thing when omnipotence, which means all-powerful, overcomes omniscience, which means all-knowing. When the all-powerful love will not allow the all-knowing mind to recall. That's what he does. There's sin I will remember no more because he laid all of our sin on his son, Jesus Christ. He suffered the penalty and therefore it has been paid in full. Now turn over to the next chapter. Just turn your page to Jeremiah 32. He continues to tell us about his vows that he's making to you and I. He says in verse 38, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is his promise to have relationship with us, a communion. They shall be my people and I will be their God. God, by his decree, has chosen to have a relationship with us. He has chosen to unite us to himself. Not because we're worthy, but because he loves us. He took the initiative. He took the action and has called us to trust him. And that's why his invitation to each and every person in this room today is to call upon his name. If you can't remember a time or a place or a reference point where you trusted Jesus Christ, he's inviting you to do so today. 
It's one of the beauties of, of baptism is it gives us that reference point of, yes, that was the time where I absolutely proclaimed my devotion, my love. I chose to place my faith in Jesus Christ. He's inviting us to do that today. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin, but he asks you to trust him. And he says also that not only am I going to be with you, but he says, I'm going to give you one another. I'm going to give you a community. I will give them one heart and one way. He's made us a family. And that's why when we come to communion we do it together as a church. And, and today we're going to serve the communion in our seats and we're going to eat of the bread and drink of the cup together because we are the family of God. We're waiting on one another in celebration and in honor of Christ. But he also says there's one way. And I believe that one way refers to abiding in Christ. Our communion with him is based upon us being with him trusting in him and allowing him to live his life in us. Would you take just a moment and would you bow your heads before the Lord? Would you thank the Lord Jesus for what he has done for you? Thank him for dying for you. Thank him for the truth that he has forgiven your sin if you've trusted him. If you haven't trusted him, call on his name right now and say, Lord Jesus, would you save me? I want to know you. If you have, thank him that he has chosen to be united with you. And then would you, along with me, ask the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts See if there are actions in our life that do not reflect our union with Christ. If there's sin or rebellion in us that we need to confess. Would you prepare your hearts before the Lord?